Let's go ahead. Y'all know where to turn to by now, right? No? All right, 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel is where we're at. Uh, We've been going uh, verse by verse, line by line through uh, this this wonderful, very telling, very timely book. And uh, we are going to read all of chapter 4 this morning as we look at a brilliant and not so brilliant kingdom building strategy. A brilliant and a not so brilliant kingdom building strategy. So if you found your place in 2 Samuel chapter 4, uh, I'm going to invite you and stand to this to stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. We're going to read this text and then pray and then we'll get to business. 2 Samuel 4 says this, when Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart and all Israel was troubled. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Baanah, and the name of the other, Rechab, the sons of Ramon, the Baarothite of the children of Benjamin. For Baaroth was also part of Benjamin, because the Baarothites fled to Katam and have been sojourners there until this day. Jonathan's, Jonathan, sorry, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Then the sons of Ramon, the Baarothite, Rechab and Baanah, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baanah, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, and they struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life, and the Lord has avenged my lord the king this day of Saul and his descendants. But David answered Rechab and Baanah, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Baarothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, Look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag, the one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore, shall I not now require his blood at your hand to remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them by the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, we thank you for how you have already been pleased to meet with us so far. Um, Thank you for the reminder of your gracious and merciful disposition toward all those who trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the reminder we have of our union with him by faith. Lord, by your grace we have come into this infinite and eternal blessing. 
Thank you for the reminder of how we are to walk in the light of the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask that you'd be pleased to continue that work now as we've opened up your word and as we read it, as it's preached, would you bring us into a greater understanding of our need for Christ, the sufficiency of his work, and a greater desire to please you in all things. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I remember a story I came across last year, 2020, about a Slovenian woman who was convicted of cutting her own hand off with a circular saw in order to cash in on about $1.2 million of insurance money. Her plan unraveled because her boyfriend apparently did an extensive internet search the day before the accident looking for prosthetic hands. That's a real story, by the way. It's just a helpful reminder, right? That all of man's plans to cheat, steal, kill, they're eventually going to return upon his own head. That's what we see today. In fact, it was Solomon who warned his son in Proverbs chapter 1. He said, if they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood, let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause... But they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. In fact, in our context, we remember those indicting words for David we found at the end, from David, we found at the end of chapter 3, don't we? Where Solomon's father, David, said, The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. We see this very clearly illustrated in our text this morning, don't we? The wicked set an ambush for themselves and they don't even know it. But before we jump in, I really kind of want to just set the stage for us. Uh, Before we look at the details of this passage, I want to point this out because I think we are prone to often miss the beauty of this literary masterpiece we get to read. I would remind us that God doesn't just communicate truth. He does so in a beautiful way. The reader will recognize that that Joab's ambush of Abner last week and the sons of Ramon, their ambush of Ishbosheth this week, they share some clear literary parallels that are worth noting. Right? The death of Abner took place in the inner part of the gate. Ishbosheth will die in the inner parts of his own house. Abner will be ambushed by Joab, unaware of the plot to shed his blood. Likewise, Ishbosheth lies innocently on his bed when he is ambushed. Abner left in peace. Ishbosheth was abiding in rest. Lastly, Abner and Ishbosheth will both die from the same fatal blow being struck in the stomach. So, two stories that tell similar stories side by side. And what is the story? The story is the wicked ambush of the innocent and the Lord will repay the evildoer according to their wickedness. But but we know that those two stories are placed in the midst of a little bit of a larger story that records the fierce, bloody, and twisted struggle between brothers. A struggle that spans between David being anointed as king over Judah and David's anointing as king over all the house of Israel. 
these are marked by two pools. So in chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, verse 13, we find the killing starts by the pool of Gibeon. And here, in chapter 4, we find it ends at the pool of Hebron. But even that story takes place in a little bit of a larger story in the larger context of 2 Samuel chapter 1 to chapter 5. We see some of the same storyline being carried forward. I'm sure you remember in chapter 1 of the story of a bearer of good news, right, that receives not the reward he expected from David, but judgment. The way the story itself here is told, it's, it's just beautiful. It's incredible. This is a literary masterpiece. Each section woven together, all bound up in such a way that you can hardly tell them apart. And yet you are right to see them as separate sections. And they all come together to tell this incredible story of a God who is faithful to his promise. But he doesn't simply say, hey, I'm faithful. He's, he's a creative God. The story that's given here, it's meant not to just teach your mind. It's meant to capture your heart. It's meant to move you. And so I've already labored this too long. But my point here is this. As I say every Sunday and Wednesday, don't just read the word. Meditate on the word. Chew on it. Attempt to understand the story better told. In fact, please read the passages before you come. Uh, and, and if you don't have a way of getting those, first, let me just tell you, we preach line by line, verse by verse. So take what I'm preaching this week and just read the following chapter next week. But I also would love to text you at some point this week and let you know uh, what we're preaching today. And we also have a This Week at Gray Gables blog that we post every week on our website. There are ways that you can know exactly what we're preaching before we open God's Word and study. And the reason I say that is because there is no possible way you will get as much out of this as you will if you have already been in the text, if you are already familiar with it, and you are coming expecting to be transformed by the preaching of God's word. I mean, can I ask you a question? Did you enter into this place this morning expecting to have your lives transformed by God's word? The reality is, if you show up for anything less than that, well, don't show up for anything less than that. Expect that because this is what we've come to partake in. All right, you guys ready to get in the text now? Do I need to say it again? You want me to say it again? All right, let's go ahead. We start in verses 1 through 8. And here we have the ambush of the innocent. We start with the ambush of the innocent in verses 1 through 8. Let's read verse 1 again. When Saul's son, which is Ishbosheth, by the way, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart and all Israel was troubled. Remember last week we spent a lot of time looking at David's response to the death of Abner. Here we get a bit of a contrast, a comparison being drawn in the way Ishbosheth responds when he heard about Abner's death. He was full of fear and all of Israel was troubled. And yet some, even within his camp, see an opportunity. Enter in the sons of Ramon. 
Now, the author gives some interesting biographical information here that helps us provide a bit of a sketch on just what these dudes are like, okay? Uh, who are these two brothers? Well, he tells us that they are captains of troops. Don't miss, again, another comparison to last week to know that that's exactly what Joab was. He was a captain of troops as well. And they, they seem to be men cut from the same cloth, don't they? See, it's easy for us to surmise from the outset that these, the sons of Ramon, are men like Joab. Severe men who do not mind getting blood on their hands. And the author actually confirms that by letting us know that they are from the land of Ba'aroth, right? You, you may think, well, that's just a hard word to say. And yes, it is. I've written the pronunciation out in my notes just so I wouldn't get it wrong. It is. And yet, there's significance there. According to verse 3, the original occupants of the city, they no longer live there. They fled to a different city that was closer to the Philistines. Why? Well, let's get to know a little bit about this city they fled from. The city belongs to the Gibeonites, right? Do you remember who the Gibeonites are? If you recall, the Gibeonites were actually residents of Israel before it was Israel. They, they tricked Joshua and the Israelites into making a covenant with them so that they would not perish by the hand of Israel. Well, it appears after some time that the Benjaminites uh, have broken that covenant since then and have driven away the original occupants, those Gibeonites. And so this is the type of people that the sons of Ramon are. They belong to this group. And so even in these first three very brief verses, we already know what type of men these are. They are violent men, ruthless men, covenant-breaking men, and they are men who seem to not know their God. Then the author introduces us to Mephibosheth. And the reason he does that is really to let us know that Ishbosheth is, is kind of the last line of defense for Saul's lineage. The last one uh, who would be a temptation or, or, or seen as who could take in Saul's place in his line. Mephibosheth is not only lame in his feet at this point, but he's also 12 years old. So he's hardly in that sense capable of leading Israel, which was what the king was expected to do. Particularly when you know what kind of king Israel was looking for, right? A king who would fight their own battles for them. So the sons of Ramon, they see their path forward. They are going to remove Ishbosheth, the head of Israel, pun intended, right? And they will certainly hope to ingratiate themselves to David in order to win his favor. So they go in, they sneak into Ishbosheth's house while he's napping under some pretense of taking some wheat, and instead they do some taking of Ishbosheth's head. We actually might note that Ishbosheth becomes the third person in 1st and 2nd Samuel who loses his head. Goliath being the first one, Saul being the second, and now Ishbosheth. And when the dirty deed is done, they fly to David in order to receive their reward for their ambush assassination, expecting some sort of favor. They haven't read chapter 1, have they? They missed out on that. Instead, in verses 9 through 12, what we read is these wicked men ambush their own lives. They ambush their own lives. And that's where we see, secondly, not only the ambush of the innocent, but now we're going to see the ambush of the wicked. The ambush of the wicked. The ambush is done by themselves. So the two brothers deliver what they assume will be good news to King David. But they're dead wrong in their assumption. 
They confess that they murdered a man and, and they even have the nerve to claim to be God's agents enacting vengeance upon David's enemies. They assume to know what is right and what is wrong. They assume to know that their actions will please the Lord's anointed King David. Now, this is really everything to the story here. It's understanding that, that these two men really do believe what they're doing is actually righteous and good. See, you don't walk into the presence of a king with someone else's head expecting it to cost you your life. You walk into the presence of the king with someone else's head because you expect that the king would be pleased with your deed. You walk into his presence expecting to merit or earn some type of favor. At least a, a that a boy or something. Maybe some gold or silver, a position of power or land. No one walks in expecting death. And yet, this isn't the first time we've read something like this, is it? No. It, it's okay to say no, by the way. This is an engagement back and forth. You can answer that. I know we're Baptists and like anytime anybody speaks, we think, charismatic, get them out of there. But no, you're, uh, you're well, you can say, anyways. We might actually go to a lot of places to see that this is the, the, not the first time, but I immediately thought of our Wednesday night class in Nadab and Abihu who attempted to find their own way into the presence of God, who came up with their own idea for how they might enter into the king's presence who sits upon the mercy seat. Do you remember that story there? Strange fire did nothing but bring wrath upon their own heads. The sons of Ramon likewise contrived their own plan for how to be accepted and merit his favor. And they meet the same end as all of those meet who attempt and believe that they have the wisdom to bridge the gap between the Lord and man. Like Nadab and Abihu, they're consumed by the wrath of God or in this case the wrath of his anointed these men who set an ambush for the innocent realize too late that they've set an ambush of their own lives. David simply requires payment for the death that they've accrued. We looked at that last week in Genesis chapter 9 verse 6. You remember the blood avenger law, right? Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Death is their due and dishonor is their reward. As Proverbs 1, 19 says, So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. Now again, to be fair, these brothers, just like the Amalekite, thought they did not think that they were doing injustice, thought that they were doing the right thing. They had good reason to do so, too, didn't they? I mean, after all, they understand how the world works. Uh, they'd taken a city from others before. They were used to taking what they want and giving nothing back. They know how the kings of the world operate and how uh, those who bring the head of their enemy to their sovereign has a, have a reasonable expectation to expect a reward. It's how the world operates. In fact, did you notice that David even actually agrees with their declaration about God? He said, indeed, it is God who avenges David. David agrees with the truth claim, but apparently these men do not know the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and honestly, Joseph. 
These men don't know the God who is able to use the wicked deeds of men to bring about his good and perfect purposes. They have divorced what God says he will do from their own responsibility. They've presumed upon the Lord to take up what he said he was going to do and to bring it about with their own hands. Does that sound familiar to you? It should. Thank you. <laughs> Wrong answer, but close. All right. I like the involvement. Okay, it should sound familiar to you. In fact, David here sees a contrast. And you remember how we talked about a kingdom-building strategy at the beginning of the service? Yes? All right. Well, let's look at David's brilliant kingdom-building strategy. It really is. David has a brilliant kingdom-building strategy here. I'm going to give you two steps of it, right? Step one, here's what David does to ensure he's bringing about the Lord's kingdom with his own hands. Step one, do nothing. That's step one of David's kingdom-building strategy right there. Do nothing. Honestly, let's ask this question. What is David doing to secure the kingdom that God has promised him? Follow the narrative. What has David done so far? He, he's received the good news and executed justice because he did not rejoice in the death of his enemy. He inquires of the Lord and goes to Hebron because the Lord told him to. Then, then what he did is he sent messengers throughout Judah and told them, you better come anoint me king or I'm going to come kill you all and burn your cities down to the ground. Right? No, good. That's not what happened at all. David shows up in Hebron and, and Judah comes to him. Judah makes him king. Then what does David do? He sends the army over to defeat Ishbosheth and bring Israel under his control? No, he doesn't. We read about this bloody struggle that transpires between men everywhere who are taking up the sword in order to do what they think is right in their own eyes. And where is David in the midst of all this? He's just sitting there. <laughs> He doesn't go out with Joab. That's between Joab and Abner. And yet, what do we read at the end of the account? That David is growing stronger and stronger and the house of Saul is growing weaker and weaker? What? He's not doing anything. How can this be? Well, it's precisely because he's the exact opposite of what we see in these two brothers. He is not deciding what is right, true, and good based on what his eyes see or his ears hear. He's not strategizing based on what would be most beneficial for him. You know what he's doing? Here's step two. Here's what he's doing, which is really step one and the same. Step two, all we see David doing to establish his kingdom, the, king, the Lord's kingdom that he had promised him, is waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. That's what David's done. Two-step plan. To, to see God's kingdom being brought about. Do nothing, wait for the fulfillment of a promise. That's the picture we find in 2 Samuel 1 through 4. A man waiting for the fulfillment of a promise. He's waiting. You know how many people have died so far in 2 Samuel? By the end of chapter 4, 409 people. You know how many have died by the hands of David? If you want to count his order of execution, three. The Amalekite who testified against him that he had killed the Lord's anointed and these two brothers who testified they murdered an innocent man. It's while he was sleeping in his bed, by the way. 
409 people have shed their blood so far in 2 Samuel. And David's hands have virtually no blood on them. And you know what's going to happen next at the beginning of chapter 5? He's going to become king of all of Israel. That's what's going to happen. He's the most brilliant military strategist of all time, is he not? I mean, it's just incredible. He conquered a kingdom by doing nothing. Go ahead and turn to chapter 5 or look there if it's on the same page. What do we read? All of Israel comes to David. And what do they say? You've actually been king all along. You've actually been serving, living, and acting as our king all along. They see in verse 1, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in times past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. This isn't how the kings of the nations become kings, is it? Honestly, have you ever read of another story of a king who actually just did nothing and people made him king? There's one, David's greater son. Understand the contrast, by the way, being drawn here. 2 Samuel 1 through 4, it's full of men who wield the sword that will never stop devouring and its end is bitter. 409 lives have been lost. So much bloodshed and all the while the man of God's own choosing is simply waiting upon the Lord to fulfill the promise that he's made. And, and I want you to think about this. I want you to actually look at 2 Samuel 5.12 for me because there's such a pivotal text there because we ask the question, why did David's king make the promise that he made? Well, it's for his people Israel. Read 2 Samuel 5, 12 with me. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. What people, by the way? Think about this. The same people who rejected him for being king over them in 1 Samuel 8. The same people who chose a violent, prideful man to rule over them because they wanted a king like the king of the nations. Here they are, still shedding one another's blood, still fighting, still acting in a way that does not bear the image of their king who brought them to himself at Mount Sinai that they might be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And instead, until this point, they are continuing to reject the very one who is establishing a kingdom they did not ask for and giving them a king they did not want. Why? That they might be delivered from all their enemies. That's remarkable. What a gracious and merciful God. Listen, I only know of one other story like that, and it's a better one. <laughs> Listen, let's just go ahead and apply this real quick. Let's just really make this personal. Can I ask you, how much of your life is still about doing what you can to bring about that which God has already promised? How much of your life is still bent toward, even subconsciously, meriting something that God has already worked out for you? How much of your life demonstrates that you are just as quick as the sons of Ramon to take matters into your own hands, to show up at the throne of Jesus holding a bloody offering, thinking you have done something to advance his kingdom? The picture we see here is it's a pale light in an otherwise dark world that points us to the very light of the world. 
the one who actually came to take upon flesh and blood that he might wait upon his father to give him that which was promised from before the foundation of the world. Did Jesus come and say, I've got all power and authority, I'm very God, a very God, and then go ahead and destroy his enemies? No. In fact, when his own people attempted to make him king by force in John 6, he refused. Why? Because he was not about to take what his father had not yet given him. You could just play that over and over again. He came not to seize, but to receive. And here's the irony. For every one of our efforts to bring about some utopian kingdom here on earth, it will never happen. You know why? Because what we actually need is the will of God done on earth as it is in heaven, a.k.a. the kingdom of God from sea to shining sea. That's what we need. And the problem is man can't take that. They can't bring that about in their own power. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 12, he said, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. There Jesus stands with the ability to, in a moment, take every kingdom of the earth, and yet he came to wait upon his father. He came not to take and seize that which was already his, but thinking equality with God, a thing not to be grasped, he laid down his life on behalf of his people. So with our greater David having shed his own blood for our souls, having set the example of refusing to reach out and grab that which had not yet been given, do we believe, hear me, do we really believe that it is left to us in order to usher in the kingdom of heaven? Is that what you think? That Jesus has done his part and now the church better get to work with building the kingdom of God on earth? Listen, friends. We inherit the same kingdom establishing plan as David. Now, but, but when I say do nothing, right, you think inactivity. That's not the case, right? That's not what David did. David did obey the Lord as those things were brought to him. He did follow the law of the Lord, didn't he? And so I don't want to focus so much on our own kingdom building strategy, even though I think we should. But, but, but this, is, this is really essentially two things I want to point out that we're called to while we also wait on the Lord to build his kingdom. I, I want to look at two particular things. You know what you've been called to? This is our kingdom building strategy right here. You know what you've been called to? The scriptures are super clear. Step one, we've been called to suffer. That's going to blow your mind as an American, isn't it? But you know what you've been called to? Suffer. You have not been called to defend some kingdom that is not yours. You've not been called to create something that can only be received. The reign of God cannot be grasped. It cannot be seized. It can only be received humbly by receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Listen, I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I know I get all fiery all the time. And you guys are probably like, why are you so mad at us? I'm not. I'm not, I'm not mad at you. But hear me, friends. I think you can agree with this. If, if there's ever a day 
that we are going to be tempted to take up some cause or to believe that we're called to do something other than that which we are really called to do, it's today. Isn't it? So, so how shall we live in the midst of this crazy, nutso world? How? Brother Corey already read it for us in 1 Peter 2. We are called to follow the one who, when he was reviled, you really got to hear this. The Spirit of Christ really needs to open your ears to this. When he was reviled, did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Remember, friends, we were those who were straying, rebelling. We are those who did not want a king or a kingdom. We are, were quite content in the domain of darkness in which we once lived. And then God said, I'm not content with that. You're mine. And so he transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Not so you could say, thank you so much for waking me up, God. Now I'm going to do you a favor and build that kingdom you've been talking about. Hear me. He doesn't need your help. <laughs> you know what he needs? Again, this might blow your mind. He needs nothing and he still loves you. He, he invites you into the communion between him, his son, and his spirit. That's why you obey, by the way. It's so that you might know his glory. That you might taste and see that the Lord is good. That you might know his love. That you might bask in the graciousness and kindness and reflect his light in a lost and dying world. Not so you can cut people's heads off with your tongue. You aren't doing Jesus any favors there. You want to do Jesus a favor? First, realize you can't ever do him a favor. Second, <laughs> here's the second step to our brilliant kingdom building strategy. Not only are we to suffer, it's not the only thing we're due. Obviously, there's much more than this, but I'm only focusing on two. But friends, we're also called to love. And doesn't it feel silly? That I, because you know if you've ever had a conversation with me when I preach, I've had to preach to myself for six days. I've told somebody this before. When I get a little bit more passionate than usual, it's because this is particularly something I'm wrestling with and I have to preach to myself first. The reality is, do you know how shameful it is in my own life that I have to often be reminded that I'm called to love people? Right? That, that seems like a simple point, doesn't it? Like we, we know this. Where Jesus loves me and so I love others. That seems to be a simple foundational truth of the gospel message. And yet, we need to be reminded every single day we've been called to love. We do. Like, to actually show to the world what it looks like to walk together in faith and unity. Amen. What it looks like. To be a body of believers who come together not so they can accomplish some political agenda or a specific set of virtues we share or any of that stuff. We are the body of Christ. How are we to walk together? Reviling? No. Taking up the weapons of the world? No. 
how we love one another so fiercely, so sincerely that the world has to stop from their bickering and fighting, even from just a moment, from cutting each other down to say, what is happening with the church? Can we do that? Not in our own strength. But yes, through the spirit of love who works our Father's love into our hearts. So let's go ahead and take it a step further. Let's love a world who hates us. That's a novel idea, isn't it? But you know you're called to do that. You're called to love a world that hates you. What about the next time you're reviled, you don't return the reviling, but instead you commit yourself to the one who judges justly and righteously? What if you don't threaten those who actually cause you suffering, but instead you commit yourself to the one who judges righteously? God has established a kingdom, and, and hear this and believe this, that will never be shaken, friends. And you and I are waiting for that. It can't be taken. It has to be received. And so what do we do while we wait? Lots of things. Suffer, love. There are so many more. We rejoice. We give thanks. We praise. We worship. And we commit to him who judges righteously. Saints, praise God for his faithfulness. He has given us a king who will never die. And he's establishing a kingdom that will never end. Keep your eyes on the horizon. It, it's coming quickly. Until then, live boldly for the king and wait patiently for his kingdom to come. Amen. Would you stand together as we pray? Gracious Father, what a beautiful picture we have here in your word of your son. Lord David, as the type, allows us to catch a glimpse of the one who did not reach out and seize that which you had already promised, but instead waited perfectly and patiently upon you. He did not glory in the death of his enemy, but instead kept his eyes fixed on you. Father, would you help us to be a people who give thanks that you have given us a better king with a better kingdom? Lord, that you've, we've been a people who have received the eternal dominion, power, and glory that you've promised to him, King Jesus, to your people. Would you help us to live in light of that which you've promised Jesus? To be a people who love fiercely, not just in amongst one another, though yes, certainly, but even love fiercely our enemies. Lord, in any time we're tempted to think about how hard that is, would you remind us of how unlovable we once were to you and the love you set upon us? Would you also help us to just to love as you loved us? And Father, in all of this, would we, the church, bear witness to the depth of your mercy and grace, to the depth of your goodness and kindness to sinners? We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.